Hand me that candle, will you? Take out the candle, and I'll block the bookcase with my body. Now listen to me very carefully. Hello, and welcome to the Hall of Fame podcast series featuring the best of the best movies of all time. Yes, that's right. We'll be going through the history of film and discussing the elite cinema from all generations. Tune in each week as we discuss, break down, and cheer on our inductees. My name is Matt Levy, and we're joined today by Mark Rossi. How are we doing, Mark? Doing great, man. Excited to be back with you, ready to dive into another couple classics. Absolutely. I feel like our third episode, we're going to hit our stride today getting the momentum going, so I'm, I'm definitely psyched as well. Yeah, I feel the snowball is it's starting to snowball down the hill in a positive <laughs> way. So I thought today, as we've been doing, we'd, we'd jump into some new genres, new classics, and the first movie that we want to talk about today is Young Frankenstein, all the way back 1974, and this one is a very well-known Mel Brooks comedy. Does anything to you jump out, Mark, when you hear uh, Young Frankenstein? I mean, Mel Brooks is always what's going to jump out uh, at you as like a, an 80s kid. You know, Mel Brooks movies were like pretty steadily in my movie watching diet. So I don't know if that was something just within like my specific family, but it, it was we always had Mel Brooks movies going, so. Yeah, I, I would say the same for me. It was sort of a family film because, you know, it's not too heavy as far as like a rated R, you know, film. When you think of some of these comedies from the 80s or 70s, a lot of those family ones, all of these, those, those comedies were difficult to watch with your parents. But this is a PG, most of the comedies slapstick or based on the dialogue and the circumstance. It's not necessarily based on based on violence or, or crude humor or even anything, you know, any nudity. It's all based on family, you know, fun humor. Yeah, definitely. I, I've made a habit of kind of revisiting all these movies as we're discussing them, just to see if there's anything that sticks out now more than before. Yeah, this is probably not the funniest, you know, knee slapping of the Mel Brooks films, but uh, it's, it's a great one. And there's some fantastic recurring gags they set up like early in the film that they call back later that they just they just work yeah i i agree with you this movie it's not necessarily a original plot the movie is heavily heavily influenced by the frankenstein stories which have been around for decades so this is not necessarily a fully original it's more of a you know a slapstick you know, Weird Al type of parody story. Paying homage to it. It's paying homage, but also poking fun at all of what the Frankenstein relationship and the Igor, Igor situation yeah. is. So it definitely pays homage in the best ways. But let's quickly, you know, talk about some of the actors, the plot, what makes this movie a Hall of Fame classic title. So I'll start by talking about some of the actors in this film, which you have Gene Wilder, who, when it comes to 70s and, and 80s comedy, he's up there at the top. And then we have Peter Boyle, uh, Madeline Kahn, Marty Feldman, Cloris Leachman, uh, Gene Hackman. It's really a star-studded cast. 
Yeah, it definitely is. You know, Gene Wilder wasn't really the household name that we'd assumed that he was just based off of what had been released previous to that. He had been in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but that didn't really hit its stride. Similar to when we were talking about Shawshank until it had its run on cable where it really hit its stride and become like a cult classic. So he had some success prior to this, obviously, but he wasn't the same household name, but a ton of talent in this cast also for sure. Yeah. You see some regular Mel Brooks, you know, comedy type actors, you know, Madeline Kahn has always been a, a big comedy star and she was also in Blazing Saddles with him. I know her well from the movie Clue. She's been in a lot of different comedies. And then, you know, Frankenstein, who's played by Peter Boyle, or they call him the monster in this. And he's very well known from the Raymond series. Everyone loves Raymond. So we yeah. have some very recognizable, very known comedy actors here. Um, Cloris Leachman as well, who's, uh, you know, kind of a legend herself. Yeah, Cloris Leachman's had a wide-spanning career in, obviously, TV and film. So, yeah, she's another legend. Yeah, absolutely. The, the film is a parody of the classic horror film genre, specifically the novel Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's famous 1818 novel. And this movie used black and white entirely, which was rare in the 70s. You didn't see a lot of black and white films. And it had a very 1930s style opening credits, giving it this old fashioned horror uh, simplistic look that really fits the film. And I think he really dove right in to get that, that feel for the movie. Yeah, I think that was definitely an interesting choice at the time. I think it was a good choice in retrospect there. When film made that transition from black and white to like color, technicolor, I don't think a lot of people were, you know, hearkening back to the days of good old black and white. But in this case, when you have something that's playing homage and, and uh, kind of playing off of those films that are already within, you know, our vocabulary and our movie going experience, it, it definitely helps to put you back into that type of setting and, and set the stage. I agree. It sets the mood, sets the stage for the movie you're about to watch. And even from the opening credits, I think a lot of movies have done that. You know, Star Wars being a famous one that when you, you set this, the stage, you set the credits, you set the, the text in the beginning, it sets the feel for what you're about to watch. The movie, the plot is very familiar to anyone who's thought about any Frankenstein uh, story or novel or movie where you have Gene Wilder playing Dr. F Frederick Frankenstein Friedrich. So he's, you know, called back to, uh, it's his grandfather, I believe, correct? His grandfather's right. Victor Frankenstein, the infamous mad scientist. And he goes back to the family estate and there's madness waiting for him between Marty Feldman's Igor and all the different characters, Inga, and all the different characters you meet along the way. And there's just, there's some pinpointed scenes that you just can't forget in this movie classic slapstick just great simple humor specifically to me the the scene with the uh, the rotating bookshelf oh fantastic with the candles and i'm looking at your beautiful dvd library behind you and i'm picturing putting a candle on one side and seeing it spin around but that scene just kills me every time that's oh, a great scene definitely a highlight of it there and probably indicative of that era 70s into 80s style type of humor with the slapstick simpler physical comedy it, it still works like slapstick still works that's why even with the 
you know, what, what people think we have more refined taste now. Obviously, everyone always thinks they have more refined taste than the generation <laughs> that precedes it. But physical gags still work now because it's funny. It's simple. Sometimes someone just being hit or getting hurt is just funny. And there's just something simplistic about it. It's not, I don't necessarily think it's the most intelligent humor at all times, but sometimes it doesn't have to be. It's something that people of all ages can laugh and relate to getting hurt or watching someone else get hurt. And this scene is one of those, you said running gags where it's like, put the candle back. And it's just this little <laughs> simplistic dialogue and you're just watching it all take place and you just know what's going to happen, but it's funny anyway. And the second scene that for me always sticks out is the scene in the cabin with the, with the blind man. Um, oh man, that's a great one. And you know, he gets burned and hit and beat up and he's this monster and he's this creature, but he's just getting abused and beat up. And it's just a hilarious scene. I think literally having soup poured in his lap twice in a row was just a, just a chef's kiss of, of comedy gold there. Uh, but yeah, that, I think that, that thing just kind of, uh, even in the, within the narrative of the movie, the, the plot's not, not always going to be the most important when you're talking about a comedy film, but you have the, the monster who's been treated as such since he came into existence at that point, And he's being treated as a person by this blind man and then he immediately pours soup in his lap and then he burns his thumb and then he, he it's it's just fantastic it's comedy gold and that is why critics did enjoy this movie and this movie was a box office success at its release on a 2.778 million dollar budget it grossed 86 million dollars which you know sometimes wow. you want to double or triple your money this is 40 times what it cost right. to make the film and critics hold it actually a 94% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an average of 8.6 out of 10. So this is a movie that is beloved, is universally enjoyed, and has been a success since it came out some 40 years ago. Yeah, I think uh, what really makes this film stand out, you know, both at the time and in retrospect, is the the dedication that you can see from the people that were involved in the project. Like... Gene Wilder co-wrote this with Mel Brooks. He had to convince him that this was a good idea to start with. And I think that kind of is interwoven into the story and his performance. It's like, there's a lot of, uh, I believe in me. I believe in my creation. I'm going to prove you guys, to you guys that it's, it is what I say it is. And, so I think, and I think Gene Wilder was the perfect person for that and to show that on screen and to... Uh, sometimes his arrogance and his at first playing this supposed to be intelligent scientist and, and professor. He's supposed to be this really brilliant doctor. He does a lot of goofy, silly, ridiculous things in this movie that that just add to his character. You know, Gene Wilder has had the uh, unique skill of being able to be kind of an everyman but slightly unhinged and you could see that he was slightly unhinged so this character is like perfectly in that in that weird lane for him of dancing on the line of of sanity and insanity and then he also you know gets to work in some song and dance because the guy could do it all well i love that you use the word unhinged because some of his expressions and some of his scenes when you see his eyes kind of bulging out of his head and his voice takes on this other tone he starts talking like in a very excited voice and his eyes bulging out of his head. And it's just, you love it. You just love it as the viewer. And the word unhinged 
you're right. He kind of lets loose in some, in some scenes. Well, one of the things that I was actually going to talk about that I think uh, is a staple of Mel Brooks movies and is also, you know, evident here is he loves to do the wordplay. So the immediate Frankenstein versus Frankenstein, uh, is it Frederick or, or, is it is it not Igor versus Igor? Well, that goes back to you know Robin Hood Men in Tights, Achu, right. and some right. of the yeah. You're right. Mel Brooks has always enjoyed wordplay, words that sound similar to other words, and people getting confused. And again, it's it's very simplistic humor. It's 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 intelligent because of how simple it is. Right. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. Sometimes you have something that's so simple, and it's just a matter of can the performers do it the right justice and make what's simple funny and not overdo it. So I think there's a great plant and payoff in the movie just on the, the wordplay early on when Gene Wilde's character interacts with a student that calls him Frankenstein and he, you can tell he doesn't like it. And he calmly responds, uh, it's, it's Frankenstein <laughs> to cut to the bridge between act two and three when he's, basically finally accepting of his lineage and he, he says uh you know it's, it's frankenstein and he screams it and it is it's it's a perfect delivery uh to kind of flip the the narrative and kick it into gear for that final run yeah and it gives his character i think a pretty good journey as you see him as first the you know professor the doctor in the classroom then moving on to where he's kind of uh, against and defying his lineage and his family to, as you said, at the end, realizing, you know, who he is and who he's supposed to be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That, I think that's a, that's a great moment in the film because it feels, it feels like going into it as a viewer, you're like, Oh, he's just faking it so that this thing doesn't kill him. But then he, he's bought into it and then he's really just giving into who he really is underneath everything. Absolutely. And a quote that I really enjoyed is one that Roger Ebert gave, which he gave the film four full stars, calling it Mel Brooks's most disciplined and visually inventive film, which also happens to be very funny. And I thought the words disciplined and visually inventive were interesting, but I thought they were well chosen because some of his movies, and you can look through Spaceballs, Blazing Saddles, Robin Hood Men in Tights, and they are a little more loosey-goosey. There's a lot more play in them. This seems to be a more scripted, disciplined. It's sticking to this plot about the doctor and the monster and the story and, the, and all that. But also, the, as we said before, visually inventive and setting this environment and, and area and creating this, this world, which seems like something out of our past. Yeah, I think it was definitely focuses the right way to describe it. It not to say that his other films are meandering by any stretch, but I think that he and Gene Wilder in their process of writing and forming the story and the characters had a clear picture of what they wanted to do and what they wanted to accomplish through the, you know, through the, the this prism and the eye of humor, but still they had a story that they wanted to tell. So it's reflected in the way that they crafted the story and even the direction and visuals, everything all together. I mean, even Mel Brooks himself had described this as his probably his finest achievement in his directing career, even if it wasn't the funniest film that he made. Yeah, I like when you describe it as focused because I think that sums it up well. You can tell the whole 
writing, the directing. It was a focused story. And they had their, obviously, their gags, their, their entertainment, their comedy in it. But this is a more focused, linear story put together. And I, I did find that interesting that Brooks uh, considered to be his finest film because, yeah, it's probably the most focused. So as far as filmmaker is concerned, it is the most clear-cut, focused, story, plot-driven of his stories. But the other ones, I think the plot is less important to some of the uh, comedy and ridiculousness that sometimes occurs. Right. That, that, I think, has become more of what's known to be a staple of his films. Like you have the merchandising scene in, in Spaceballs, you have just the out of nowhere men in tights scene <laughs> in men in tights like the titular song uh song and dance so you can tell that there was something here that differed from the approach on these on his other films absolutely so i think we hit upon a lot here the story the plot why it was important to this movie obviously the actors and and, and the people in this movie made this movie the success that it was the soundtrack i don't think was necessarily a major strength of the film, but the score and, and the music definitely set the tone again. So that environment, that feel for the movie. Anything about the, the music that stood out to you? No, nothing stood out um, as far as the soundtrack is concerned, but not all films necessarily have to have a standout soundtrack. I think if you have something that's setting the ambiance correctly and it's not standing out in a negative way, that's not just detracting. Good, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think if it's not pulling away from the experience and it's it's, it's not hurting the overall uh, ambiance, as you said. Now, this movie was, as we said, a huge commercial success. The impact on the genre as comedy and parody. I mean, I think a lot of parody films, from Mel Brooks in general, have been influenced when they saw what he was able to do with the Frankenstein story and other stories that he's parodied, such as Star Wars. I think uh, a lot of the scary movie and different parody movies we've seen for decades now, I think he was really one of the first ones to do it and do it well. Yeah, I think the lasting impact as far as this film is is pretty pretty clear on the genre, but also even within his own films, I think some of the gags that worked really well in this, he ended up kind of dipping back into the well with in a different way, but it just works. The physical switching of the side of the hump, the, the hump is on, was a, is a fantastic gag. Uh, and then they use that with the moving mole uh, on King Richard in, in uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights and then they actually acknowledge it with a line, which is where it differs. So I think that was something that they found really worked here that he ended up kind of going back for. You know, that's very funny. I never made that connection. And not till right now do I realize that, again, some of his gags, he's transitioned into other movies, even though they can be completely different types of movies, he's made that gag work in a different way. And that, that's a perfect one to, to pinpoint. Yeah, I, I think the, the thing that made it different and why it hits differently is in this one, Igor seems to be aware that the hump is moving but doesn't acknowledge it explicitly while King Richard is completely unaware of it and acknowledges it and says, I have a mole. It's just fin phenomenal. Just it's, fantastic. It's one great. And this is a movie that's still easily uh, watched today. Um, I don't think that this movie has poorly aged because as we've said in the past, period piece movies sort of set the stage for that time. So you kind of just put your mind in that period that it was supposed to be filmed in. And you don't have to worry about cell phones or computers because this is obviously a period piece type movie in a certain area where it's supposed to be filmed. So uh, I don't think the time or the place of this movie. So I think you can easily watch this movie. It's, it's easily found on you know Blu-ray DVDs, streaming services, all that. 
And I think you can have a hoot with this movie today if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, definitely can have a great time watching it. I would be mad at myself if I didn't mention one more gag that I just <laughs> remembered uh, that I think is phenomenal when we're talking about location. Obviously, it's in Transylvania. And when the younger, the young titular, young Frankenstein, is heading back to his grandfather's estate, he takes a train and the train goes to New York and then continues to Transylvania. It's, it's, it's just fantastic. It's a fantastic joke. It's the same people, they just go from speaking English to not speaking English. Yeah, that, that one always gets me as well. I've always <laughs> enjoyed that as far as location play. So the 1974's Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks hit. Obviously he had, uh, I believe Blazing Saddles came out that same year, yep. uh, just prior to this. But one of Mel Brooks' best, some say his best, others may say maybe not his funniest, but it's hard to argue that's not one of his best films. Yeah, definitely. A proud inductee into the Hall of Fame for sure. Excellent. So another great one, another hit added to our Hall of Fame. And the second movie that we're going to talk about today, Mark, is a real fun one. This one's a blast from the past. And this is Back to the Future from 1985, the Michael J. Fox classic. Definitely uh, a classic, one that you, you know, it's, it's impossible to kind of escape this one. It's never really left the like cultural zeitgeist, uh, if you ask me. So I've been l- looking forward to talking about this one for sure. Yeah, Back to the Future and its sequels have really formed a place in people's, in terms of culture and society and movies and influence. This one, whether you're talking about the car, the music, the story, the actors, Everything about this has now been discussed and uh, heavily, heavily influential film uh, for 1985. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a big fan of the films, obviously we just passed one of the, the, f- the future date and anniversary of the future date. So I'm always excited when we land on uh, either a 10 or a five year anniversary of time travel, whether it's to or from, you know, one part of the, timeline of the the trilogy to another yeah it's always fun to know that we we now passed the future and we don't have half of the technology that they shown in those movies yeah i, I think that's probably for the better <laughs> but this movie a 1985 american science fiction film i would also call it like an adventure sci-fi comedy you can throw a lot right. of different genre terms in there science fiction definitely being one of them but this is a comedy but it's an adventure film at its heart i think it's you know, following Marty McFly, one of like the cultural names as far as science fiction or, you know, you know, our movie film genre goes, Marty McFly is one of those names that everyone knows. And it's about this 17-year-old high school student who's accidentally sent 30 years into the past in a time-traveling DeLorean, DeLorean invented by his close friend, the eccentric scientist, Doc Brown. Yep. I mean, as far as plot goes, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief in, in this film. But what, anything that's involving time travel, I think when, you, when you're accepting time travel, you're going to be accepting almost anything else that comes along with it. Yeah, I would say anytime a movie or a story takes on time travel, yes, you have to suspend your disbelief, but you also have to make it as realistic as possible. 
And I think what made this movie successful, and to this day it's very successful, is that it plays with what happens in the past would affect the future, which seems to make sense. You know, things you and me do right now, if I throw my phone on the floor, it's going to crack. If someone stopped me from doing that, then it made me, again, I'm playing with just the throwing it out there, but this plays with those ideas of cause and effect. Right. It definitely plays into, in a big way, uh, the butterfly effect mm-hmm. of, you know, one action in the past, what that will do for the future. And there are uh, several great callbacks that they do of, of subtle things that change, even when they correct the things that they didn't mean to change. So I think that was an interesting thought, you know, more thought for broken than people might have expected from it. If you're paying attention to tiny little minute details in the background, but at its core, you know, it's a, it's a genre ca- uh, crossing type of film. Like you were touching on, even just in the intro there, it's science fiction, it's adventure, it's action. It's a, it's a comedy. It's a buddy film, but a buddy film with, a, we, do we know what age doc is? We don't know. 50 something. Is he 60 something? Who knows? I think he's got to be because when you go he's back, he's got to be in his sixties, right? Yeah, he's still in his thirties, I would say. When right. they come back, so yeah, so you have a, a but, but it's not even like it contrives. It doesn't feel contrived at any point. You have a genuine affectionate friendship between this. We'll be generous and say mid fifties scientists and this teenager, and I don't think ex- except when people explicitly say that out loud that you ever think oh yeah, well, this doesn't work. It works in the, in the film. You can feel the, the way that their relationship is presented is there's genuine affection and there's reason for it. And I wouldn't call this movie a drama, but I would definitely say there are dramatic moments and moments that are not just singularly about comedy. There are serious moments involving his parents that he goes to visit in the past or moments with him and Doc Brown and other characters that are truly dramatic moments that make this, again, I think more of an adventure type film. So the plot really, as you said, it's taking place, part of it says time traveling DeLorean. So yes, you already know what you're getting yourself into, but I think this movie, like many other successful movies we talk about, I think the actors and who they cast make these movies a success. I think the casting here is spot on. Definitely. And I knew that we were going to end up diving into this since that's part part of the folklore of this movie. But yeah, they did such a great job with the casting of this film. Obviously, it's hard to picture other people doing better than the great job that we're going to be talking about in any of these films since we're talking about Hall of Fame type quality movies. But especially with Michael J. Fox, he knocks it out of the park. I, it's, a, it's a phrase that I'm going to continue using that I've used before and I'm never going to be able to stop. But he does such a phenomenal job. He embodies this character. And you can tell why he was their first choice. He was not a no-name at this point, Michael J. Fox. Um, he, at this point, had already made himself known as an actor. He was on the, uh, I believe, the TV show at this point. Family Ties. As yeah, Alex Family P- Ties, which is when he was actually filming, coinciding, it's kind of the conflict where they actually yep. originally cast Eric Stoltz for the leading role. And famously, infamously, they actually recast Michael J. Fox and it, they had to do a lot of reshoots. This was, you know, right at the end as they were starting to finalize the movie, they're saying, this is not working. This actor is not what we envisioned. And they actually had to replace him. And this was a 
huge deal. It was a huge deal for a, a multitude of reasons. You know, scheduling, they've already mu- invested money. They'd shot scenes. So, you know, kudos to, to Zemeckis and the entire team for, you know, knowing what the vision was and what the character was and having the courage to be like, this isn't working. We have to get our guy. And then also credit to the studio for working with them. And then Michael J. Fox for... I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say his Herculean effort considering the scheduling for this because he was filming family ties simultaneously with back to the future. So he was working like 20, 22 hour days. Yeah. Unbelievable. And his career after this, obviously go from back to the future. Teen Wolf is, you know, a fun series, fun movie. Uh, You got the sequels to back to the futures doc Hollywood, which is always a fun movie to bring up. And then I always enjoyed The Frighteners, which is a fun horror movie. So he's got an IMDb page that goes on and on. He's obviously had a very successful career, but I don't think, yes, he's spot on, but I think it was also the casting of Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown that is equally as big a deal. Because I think some of the other roles you probably could have recast. I think Leah Thompson's wonderful. Crispin Glover, wonderful in these parts. But right. I think if you had recast one or two, maybe the movie could still be successful. But I think getting Marty and Doc Brown were the two big successes. Definitely. Those two are the heart of the film. It's why it's still revered and people, you know, think about and talk about and watch this movie obsessively now is because they are the heart of that film. They're the heart and soul of the movie and their performances are what carry it through. Yeah, for me, Christopher Lloyd, watching him, he almost looks like a mad scientist. You know, his reactions and his hair. And at any point, as you said before, unhinged uh, to describe Gene Wilder in our previous film, uh, Christopher Lloyd is, is, is a brilliant man, of course, playing a doc, you know, that's invented time travel. But he's definitely mad as well. Definitely, yeah. We have two movies uh, today where, where the phrase mad scientist is thrown around, and I think accurately within the films themselves to describe the characters. I think it wasn't until maybe, no, I think they, may, they might acknowledge it in this film, but they definitely have it in the second film for Back to the Future, where they talked about Doc Brown being a, a, a crackpot scientist. So Christopher Lloyd, yeah, he also operates properly for this character in that, in that really narrow line of sanity versus insanity. Absolutely. And, and sort of the fun of this movie is seeing Marty go back 30 years into the past and actually interacting with his parents. So, you know, this whole story comes to be that he inadvertently almost gets his, uh, that his parents don't meet the way they're originally supposed to. So this, at some point, you figure, I might not be born, Marty's thinking, and he's starting to disappear from the time. So a lot of fun stuff is, hey, he tries to fix the timeline and fix all what is supposed to come into play. But that's sort of the fun of this movie and some of the, the shock and, and the, what keeps you at the edge of your seat is you know, Marty might not exist if he doesn't fix this. Right. The stakes can't be higher. He's, he's literally fighting for his own existence. Right. And every act that he does to try to undo the damage that he's already done seems to push him further towards not existing. So uh, it's, it ends up being a literal existential crisis rather than just being figurative. You know, from seeing his parents in the present where you see his, his mother is this overweight, depressed, alcoholic, you know, the, the father, George, who's, you know, this coward, he was, he's bullied 
by uh, his supervisor, Biff. And he's constantly just, you know, seems timid and scared in his own skin. Right. And then you, you go back and you see the parents before these people, you see who they were previously. And it's really fun to see he actually changes things for the better. It seems like Marty actually makes things, uh, improves uh, them as people. Yeah, it's an interesting thought of, um, you know, obviously we're a product of our parents and how we're raised. But if you were able to go back in time, you know, would would you be friends with your parents, you know, or would you hate each other? And also, would you be able to influence your parents the same way they influenced you? It's like, it's an interesting, you know, thought provoking premise that kind of uh, turns into a, a great action adventure film. Who knew? And this movie, you know, the DeLorean, the car itself, uh, people joke about because the DeLorean is not a Ferrari or a Rolls Royce or anything like that. But so it is funny and comedic to some people that the DeLorean has become this legendary car because of this movie. So there is sort of a cult following to uh, the car, the DeLorean, because of Back to the Future. I'm not too ashamed to admit that uh, when I was growing up as a big fan of this movie, I was heavily emotionally invested in getting a DeLorean as, as a car. That that quickly faded away as uh, I realized that, you know, they don't make DeLoreans anymore, so it's going to be a very old car. And they even acknowledge it in the film. Um, again, it, in the series, in the second movie, they talk about how if they, it's like, yeah, let's land the DeLorean on top of Viv's car, we'll cripple it. It's like they'll tear through us like tinfoil. So they acknowledge how ridiculous uh, the choice was. It's wonderful. And I, I believe there's certain key scenes in this movie that are, are just impossible not to talk about. One of them for me is, you know, the Johnny Be Good uh, scene. So you have Marty as uh, of, sort of in a crisis. I believe it's the dance scene. And, you know, he runs up on stage and, you know, he asked them to play something. And they, they kind of go, huh, what, what, what do you want to play? And uh, he grabs a guitar and just goes nuts. And he's got all the rock moves. He's singing the song that no one in the 50s ever heard. And it gets everyone distracted and, and, and he succeeds. But it's just, just a, I think it's for like the peaks, the peak of the movie. It's kind of the climax when he's up there playing. And it, it's just a fun, memorable, it reminds me of like Ferris Bueller Day Off where he's up there singing as well. I feel like these, yeah. these, these big climactic song numbers are, are the most memorable scenes of the movie. Yeah, that's definitely one of the classics. It's been referenced countless times since, uh, and for good reason, obviously. But yeah, it's a it's a memorable scene. Obviously, as a huge super fan of the movie, I even remember he says, uh, "Yeah, it's like play something that really cooks." It's like something that really cooks. And he goes like blues riff and B. Uh, watch me for the changes and try to keep up. And then just the smallest plant and payoff that it's Marvin Berry, and he calls his cousin <laughs> Chuck. And he gives him his iconic song. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great song. Taught him, taught him his own song. Yeah, it's, it's pretty a, clever. It's a great song. But as soon as you hear the, the na 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 you just, you, you totally get into it because it's, it's a rocking good time. And, um, you know, right around here, we have the scene where, you know, Biff attempts to make a move on Lorraine. And, you know, George finally comes through. Even though he didn't come as originally planned, he finally comes through, knocks out Biff and becomes a hero and, you know, everyone lives happily after, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, it takes the urging of his own son and some urging from Darth Vader uh, <laughs> and Eddie Van Halen. But he finds an inner strength that he didn't even know that he had. And it's something that then he's able to carry forward through the rest of his life in the timeline in the 
reconstructed future that Marty makes for himself there. And it's interesting to think about, you know, even just as a person, it's like, if something in your formative years like that happens, where you discover your inner strength, would you be able to just use that to harness for the rest of your life, you know, into something very different from what could have been? Yeah, that's very interesting because, you know, sometimes people do find confidence in different situations, different ways of their life. And is that, is that something that's sustainable? Is that something you can carry through? Is, does it lead to success in other avenues? It's a very interesting concept. And this movie makes you believe that because of that one event, he becomes a completely different person than who you see in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I, I think there's something to it. Uh, you know, if we dive off of the movie for a second, I think, yeah, there's moments in our lives, right? Where, uh, where we, there are formative moments throughout our entire life. And sometimes that can kind of shape who you are as a person, but there's always kind of junctures where you can see how you've changed as a person, uh, spe- you know, specifically. So I think it's entirely possible, but I think the movie can obviously entertain but i think it's again another one that's more thought-provoking than it it is at face value yeah at face value i agree you would think this movie uh, time travel silly comedy but this movie has more substance to it Um, i think mark is saying that if you do punch biff it'll change your life forever (laughs) I, i felt i felt my life change as soon as he hit him with that left but after that marty had to then get back to the future and there's no plutonium uh, at this point. So they needed to get, you know, the gigawatts and get the clock and do this and get the good certain speed and hit a connect all at the same time. And then the power unplugs. So then doc has to climb up and connect the wires together because there's not enough thrilling, you know, it's such a phenomenal sequence, <laughs> the entire thing, the, the entire way that they frame it and construct it together is just so incredibly well done. And saying it out loud, it seems silly, but yes, the whole, this is the climactic scene, I would say, because Marty's trying to get back to his girlfriend, to his family, and one thing after another is kind of in his way, preventing him, and it takes a lot of things to work out to, at the last second, millisecond even, as the plugs come together, psh, Marty's back into the future. Yeah, I think it's, also interesting, there's a couple of points there. So I think for the character within the film itself there, he makes a decision to change the time he goes back there to try to save his friend, which again, kind of ties back to the reason this movie works so well is their relationship and that you buy, that they genuinely love each other. Like it's a, it's a platonic friendship, but it's a genuine love that they have and he's trying to save his friend. Like he ended up inadvertently going back to the past, trying to, you know, save his friend. And he's going back to the future and changing the time he's going back to the future again, trying to save his friend. So I think that's something that's really great. And I think that's also interesting. We're talking about that entire sequence when he goes back into the future and it's a classic sequence. It's a fantastic sequence that really builds the tension up. It wasn't even how it was scripted. They just ran out of money. Like they originally were trying to have him go through, I believe they were, it was a nuclear plant and that's where they were going to go back to the future, but they couldn't figure out logistically how to make it work on their budget. Yeah. It's very interesting. And as you said, certain sequences, that one in particular was key, but 
as you said, Christopher Lloyd's character, Doc Brown, is shot in the beginning of the film. You know, in the van, you know, you know, there's a shooting. And that's one of the reasons he inadvertently gets sent to the past, Marty. And now not only does he want to return, but he wants to try and save his friend. So that's the other plot point. It's not just Marty getting back, but also saving his friend and getting this information to him so he can get back in time. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how that all weaves together. Budgetary re- restrictions did prevent... I did read that too, the, the, yeah. the power plant possibility. But this movie on its budget was a tremendous success. Back to the Future was a critical and commercial success, earning $381 million to become the highest grossing film of 1985 worldwide. Critics praised it, you know, the story, the comedy, the cast. It received multiple nominations for awards. And we didn't talk about it yet, but the theme song by Huey Lewis and the News is probably the most successful, probably uh, song that I can think of from its time that came from a movie that also won an Academy Award nomination. I mean, yes, 80s music was very powerful, but The Power of Love is one of those easily memorable loved songs from the time. Yeah, it's a, it's very recognizable. It's a great song, per, personal opinion. Um, but it's also another great sequence in the film, I think. And I'm sure we were going to touch on it, but we'd be remiss to not mention the work that Alan Silvestri also did with the score. So between that, Huey Lewis and the News doing great work with that, and I believe Back in Time is the other song that bookends it. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great theme song for a film and it's perfect for the sequence that they did the i the i'm late for school and him just hitching a ride off of different cars waving to the aerobics class it's it's everything about it is just it's just it fits perfectly i'm so glad you touched on the score because this is one of those mood setting simple scores something we hear this little twinkle almost and it sets the whole feel for a scene and it's so easily memorable when you hear the score. I think you can hear it. Someone can play just a few seconds of it and you'll know Back to the Future. And it, it, it almost feels like a tune or a score that's playing with time. It almost feels like, you know, going, you're going through time as you hear this noise. So it's such a perfect score and perfect uh, sound for the film. Yeah, I was thinking along the lines of the theme, but I'm glad that you mentioned just the audio cue of the like that that yeah i don't know how else to describe it. it's just perfect that you feel you feel like like you're moving through time and that there's the, there's an urgency to it absolutely and, and this movie since its release it's grown it's considered one of the greatest films of the 80s uh, one of the best science fiction films ever made and some people consider it one of the greatest films of all time this movie has been considered a culturally significant historic film as you said um, the little guitar riff that Eddie Van Halen wrote is also a signature moment of the film. There's a lot of signature things that had become infamous. You know, Johnny Be Good, the whole sequence there has been sort of a, a staple of this movie. Um, the skateboarding chasing we didn't even touch on. That's another iconic one. Which they reuse again in Back to the Future 2, which Back to the Future 2, I think, does a lot of similarities. It tries to play with time and space and reuse certain sequences from the first film. I think most people think it's a a lesser film. I do enjoy the second one and all the Mm -hmm. the future elements of it. I think most people consider the third the weakest, which I would agree. Yep. They go west. 
but yes, the, the, uh, the skateboarding scene is a wonderful sequence as well. That's uh, memorable from this movie. Yeah. And obviously the influence of this movie extended into, into the biggest, the highest grossing film of all time into Endgame, uh, where it's mentioned by name, but also if you mention back to the future part two, just having yourself time travel to the same timeline where you're in and making sure you don't interfere with what your current self is doing in that timeline. So the influence and the, the fingerprints for this movie are all over, uh, you know, Endgame as well. I'm glad you, know, you said that because there's been many times where people have paid homage and been influenced by this movie. And that's everything from the, the plot, uh, some of the sequences, the sound effects, and, and even the car, even the car has been paid homage to as well. And uh, the DeLorean, we, we mentioned it before, the special effects in this film were, were pretty special as well. Simple, but effective when needed. The DeLorean I've read, they actually had three that they used in the filmmaking. One specifically for special effects, one for normal shots, one for stunts. I've been told or I've read that they were unreliable and they often broke <laughs> down. So it's interesting that this was used as the car, but I think it's perfect fitting because they said this is something that Doc Brown would have driven. You know, I think they said that, you know, Ford Mustang approached them and other companies approached them, but they said, nah, you know, DeLorean, it kind of, it's kind of a funky car. Doc Brown could drive. That's something he could drive. Right. It's, he's, he's definitely, you know, he even acknowledges it with a, a line that could be seen as a throwaway line. It's like, it's like you turned a DeLorean into a time machine. You made a time machine out of DeLorean. He's like, yeah, if you're going to time travel, why not do it in some style? And I think that's definitely part of it. it. It's, there's a style with that DeLorean that really worked well that I don't think you would have gotten if you picked a different car. Absolutely. One more term I want to throw at you. And these words are flux capacitor. Yep. I think we are forced to state those two words because that's another staple of this movie, the words flux capacitor. Yeah, absolutely. The flux capacitor, dot, 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 fluxing, as Marty would say. Yeah, it's just fantastic, fantastic work. In closing thoughts for Back to the Future, we hit on the plot, the film, the cinematography, some really great shots, great film work on this. Uh, the soundtrack we've hit on, the music of this film was so important. The actors, and we talked about Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, were also very, very well known uh, to this day because of these movies. We've talked about the, the impact, the success, the impact on the genre, how it's been. And I would say today, how it's aged. I would say this is a movie that uh, is a bit 80s feeling, which um, I have no problem with, but I think some younger people will definitely notice the, the 80s has a different mm -hmm. kind of feeling to it. The whole 80s as a whole, the music, the movies has its own sort of feel and there's nothing wrong with that in my books, but I think certain people might think that it's, it's aged in some ways. Yeah. But I think the, the thing that makes this one work more than the sequel um, as far as that's concerned and, and aging is because it's technically a period piece, right? It's set in current day, 1985, and then they go into the past in 1955. And then you, you get the, you know, the yearning for the good old days and are the good old days really the good old days. But because it's set in 85, I think it, it still ages really well. I don't think that they did too many special effects that were reliant overly on 
being on the cutting edge of technology at that time, they used some more practical effects. And I think any time that a film uses practical effects from this time period, you know, that predates, I'd even say the 2010s, where we've really made that leap ahead in CGI. Uh, anytime you rely on practical effects, it's going to age a lot better. I agree with you. I'm actually going to change my stance there and say, yes, because of the period pieces, very little of the movie takes place in the 80s that feels very 80s, I'd say, outside of some of the music we touched upon. Yeah, I would say because it's sort of more of a period piece, it's more taking place in the 50s. You're right. I think it's the sequel that is trying to take place in the future. But if you're living in 2020, it feels very different than, <laughs> than, than the time it's supposed to represent. I think to the movie's credit, though, even, even the sequel, it feels disappointing to live where we're living instead of that 2015. No right. Mr. Fusion, no pizza that you have in a little disc that you can hydrate level seven, I think it was, and have a full pizza. Best looking pizza hut pizza I've ever seen in my life, by the way, in that sequel. But yeah, I, but the original film, I think, still, still stands up well. Uh, I think that's the probably been the most surprising thing about reviewing some of these films from 70s and the 80s is just how well a lot of them still stand up. And I think that's why these movies are considered all-time greats. They're holding a place in our Hall of Fame. And as we said, they're so influential. You know, uh, Avengers, Endgame, influential moments in it from this movie. Stranger Things has definitely uh, touched on many things from Back to the Future. The animated TV series Rick and Morty has mm -hmm. many times mentioned and, and heavily played homage to Back to the Future. And uh, filmmaker J.J. Abrams has also cited this movie as an inspiration towards a lot of the science fiction films that he took a part in. Yeah, it's a film that that I think there's no way that you know Bob Zemeckis could have known it was going to have the type of impact that it had. But, you know, with the care that they put into it and the way that, you know, it, people have responded to it, it's not a surprise that we're 35 years later and it is still one of the greats. Well, I think we did a good job of, of explaining why this movie's great, why we love this movie. It's rewatchable. Um, you can jump in any moment of this movie and easily get pulled in. It's not a movie that you have to really sit down from the beginning. You could jump in at any sequence and feel like you're along for the journey with Marty and Doc. So definitely watch this. It's easy to find. Uh, you can stream it. You can buy it. You can get it anywhere. It's on TV pretty often because of its popularity and, and because of its significance. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a minimal annual watch for me. I watch every November 5th, <laughs> but it's, it's in incredibly rewatchable. It never gets old to me, and uh, I'm glad that it's made it into our Hall of Fame, that's for sure. Well, thank you guys for joining us again. We hope you're having as good a time as we are talking about some of the great movies of all time. Please uh, subscribe, download, uh, tell your friends about our movie podcast. And please join us again next week as we touch upon the next two great movies of our Hall of Fame. Thanks again, guys. Stay tuned. Thanks for supporting us. Don't need money. Don't take fame. Don't need no credit card.